This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. My name is Jackson and welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast. It's just me in the studio alone today which is unsurprising considering I've had the last few weeks off, thanks to James and Layla and Gab for covering my absence during that time, as I focused, such as my attention is, on my university studies and got my essays finished, so that was um, a good thing. But now I'm back and others are taking a break on this, which is uh, a long weekend for some, not so for others, uh, but some people do take the Monday off, and then we have that big horse race tomorrow, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, wish was not on. But uh, you know, the, the benefit is for some people that they get a public holiday, which is which is a nice thing. Perhaps get to go away. So maybe you're listening this morning from a national park, or visiting friends or family, or uh, you know, hanging out, spending some quality time with your kids if you have them, uh, or maybe you're still asleep because you've taken advantage of the opportunity of having a later night last night. I'm not sure, but whatever you're doing, good morning. So this morning we're going to have a pretty relaxed show. I'm going to play a bit of music, a bit of local music that I've been enjoying recently. Um, We do have an interview coming up at about half past seven this morning with Sione Crawford, who's the CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria. Uh, Sione will be joining us over the phone from New Zealand, where there is a large conference running about alcohol and other drugs and uh, harm reduction techniques that New Zealand have had some real success with. And, you know, we've had some wins here in the state of Victoria too recently with the opening of the safe injecting room, uh, amongst other things. Um, you know, organisations like DanceWise, which are connected to Harm Reduction Victoria, have been uh, fantastic in bringing the needs and uh, experiences of drug users to the wider community. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that chat. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to play an interview that I conducted a little while ago. It's about an exhibition that was on at the Ian Potter Centre, an exhibition called Eavesdropping. It's all about state surveillance and um, the idea of listening. Uh, it involved some of the people imprisoned uh, on Manus Island, uh, it also involved a lot of really interesting artists uh, from here and elsewhere, and it ran for a few weeks in October. Unfortunately, we couldn't play the interview earlier for a range of reasons, but I think the issues that um, both James and Joel, who I chat to in the interview, raise uh, are really interesting ones, and I think they're, uh, they're timely, even now. So I'm looking forward to playing that. Um, but as it is at the start of the show, uh, I will do a brief alternative news. Some folks know about it, 
Many of our listeners would have been uh, feeling some mixed emotion as we have read in the newspapers and heard on the radio that um, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison has, you know, quietly and without fanfare been removing children from their years-long uh, uh, detention uh, in Nauru uh, and Manus, you know, due to public out- outcry, uh, which has been occurring for years, you know, which reached a crescendo last Christmas, I remember, and felt like there was going to be some, tra- some traction. You know, recently it's been the AMA and other medical organisations such as Médecins Sans Frontiers, the Australian Medical Association, I should say, pointing out the horrendous impacts on children seems to hit a nerve with people. I mean, it has horrendous impacts on adults as well, grown adults, young people, uh, the people that I've spoken to who've been in detention, a lot of them, young men and women, you know, in their early 20s, they have their whole lives ahead of them and they are just languishing uh, in these prisons uh, with no uh, sign of any relief it's a horrible situation uh but i just wanted to uh bring the listeners attention to an article that was written by uh kishore napier raman and charlie lewis for the crikey publication which is behind a paywall so uh isn't available to all people so i just wanted to read this out and uh, appreciate kishore napier raman and charlie lewis's work and crikey's work as well um I think this is an important article. The title is, um, The Government is Lying About How and Why It is Taking Children Off Nauru. So this week, the slow softening of the government's rhetoric on asylum seekers has continued with reports that all children will be removed from immigration detention on Nauru by Christmas. Outsourcing the initial announcement to former Attorney General George Brandis to come a distance in it from the government proper, Prime Minister Scott Morrison even went so far as to take credit for the quiet, dignified way in which he'd apparently organised evacuation of children to Australia. But in many cases, it needs to be pointed out, and this is what the article does, it's the courts, not the government, that have been getting children out of detention. So children have been transferred off Nauru, said Morrison on Tuesday, haven't been drawing attention to it, it's been done in accordance with our policies, you know, he doesn't want a grandstand, of course he was saying this on a statewide broadcaster, 2GB, so I'm not really sure, it seems a bit hypocritical to me to say you're not making a song and dance about it while you make a public announcement about it. But this article says that the claim that he's made does not stack up to any scrutiny. Over the past year, the government has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in the federal court, vigorously fighting attempts to bring sick children from Nauru for treatment in Australia. There has been absolute deception from the government on this, Yana Favero, Director of Advocacy and Campaigns at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, told Crikey. This is a significant contradiction between what the government is saying and what it is doing. So while they're saying that they are quietly and uh, you know, di- in a dignified way removing these children, uh, the recent history would suggest that they have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars fighting in the courts, as people bring uh, civic suits against the government for breaching their duty of care uh, to these children in particular, um, you know, where we're hearing, you know, suicidal ideation in children under 10. We're hearing uh, terrible mental health issues from being locked up from, from birth, essentially, or from a very, very young age. Daniel Webb, director from uh, the Legal Advocacy of Human Rights Centre, told Sky on Thursday, it's real sleight of hand of the government to point to the children in Australia as if their evacuation was some kind of humanitarian gesture when they've opposed most of these transfers in our federal court. We've had a case in the federal court at 1am on a Sunday morning for a child who, on the medical evidence, 
was at risk of dying in one or two days, and the court ordered that the child be brought to Australia for medical treatment. So in our experience, the kids who have been brought to Australia have been rescued from the government, not by the government, Webb said. And I just think that's a really important distinction to make, and it's good that a publication like Crikey is making it. And it's a shame that, that it is a paid subscription, but I think, you know, in this ongoing world, of fake news and bias and the pressure that's being put on the ABC that we've seen at the moment. Here at 3CR, obviously, we don't have any pressure from any corporate or government entities, which is a wonderful thing. But in terms of the ability to go out and do investigative journalism, it costs money, it takes time. And, uh, you know, I'm just really thankful that there is these, um, these news outlets out there to find this news. So that was one thing I wanted to highlight. I think later in our today's uh, show uh, after eight, uh, after eight a.m. I believe. Uh, I just wanted to have a chat about um, some press releases from the Freedom Socialist Party here in, um, sorry, in the U.S. about solidarity with victims of anti-Semitic violence. You know, pipe bombs and uh, terrible killings in the U.S. are uh, targeting Jewish communities. Um, you know, which obviously uh, the pre- the current presidents are racially and um, ideologically charged oratory is not helping to settle things down in any way. Uh, I think it would be re- interesting to have a chat about that. And also I might have a chat about um, an upcoming action uh, organised by children, primary school children, to walk out across the country in solidarity on politicians' inaction on climate change and the continued insistence that they'll be building the Adani mine. Uh, so that's happening on November 30, but I'll talk a bit more about that in the third half hour of our show. Uh, right now, I just wanted to play uh, an interview I mentioned earlier that I conducted with uh, Joel Stern from Liquid Architecture and James Parker from the Melbourne Law School. And they put together a really interesting exhibition that was on last month at the Empire Gallery called Eavesdropping, all about safe state surveillance. Uh, yeah, so have a listen. Eavesdropping is a strange word. It conjures images of hanging from the rafters, catching overheard conversation that perhaps isn't meant for you. For many years it was a crime, and still remains so in certain situations. Try listening into a cabinet meeting or police briefing. But then many of us may have done it, on a train carriage perhaps, or at a party, even in a workplace. Sometimes we can't even help it. Today in the era of big data and state spy apparatus, driven by the digital revolution in recording technology, eavesdropping is happening more often, as states try harder and harder to monitor the behaviour of their citizens, preempting attacks, or even unrest. Eavesdropping is the title and subject of a new exhibition, running for the rest of this week at the Ian Potter Museum of Art. The project brings together artists, activists, and a group of refugees imprisoned on Manus Island to present and dissect the politics of eavesdropping. I'm joined by the curators of this large and inscrutable program, Joel Stern from Liquid Architecture and James Parker from the Melbourne Law School. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the chat. So, James, what is the etymology of eavesdropping? Where does the word come from? Well, it sort of depends how far you want to go back. Um, why don't we start in just, you know, the 14th or the 15th century uh, for now? Eavesdropping refers to the eaves of a house. The water would run off the roof of the house and sort of um, fall onto the ground below. And so to eavesdrop was to stand under this um, architectural configuration under the eavesdrop of a house, mm. and so to listen in um, uh, to, to what's going on inside. And in, in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, when this um, uh, offence uh, was evolving, um, 
um, eavesdropping was a was a major social problem in the in the, the sort of the villages in which it was um, um, most often prosecuted. There was a period there where eavesdropping was one of the most the foremost uh, commonly prosecuted offences in this particular legal jurisdiction in in, in England. And so, um, what was the problem? Um, well. Not so much um, the kind of thing that we associate uh, today with eavesdropping. It wasn't so much a matter of privacy. Um, eavesdropping, you know, it wasn't uh, uh, so much about uh, invading somebody's personal space, although, of course, um, that's sort of a part of it in a way. It was a public order problem. Eavesdropping was um, a social problem insofar as we, people, um, villagers didn't want people skulking around outside late at night, um, <laughs> you know, nefarious, uh, uh ne'er-do-wells and so on. Um, and so, so, and because that might provoke some kind of, um, uh, social disorder. And so actually the, the original offense of eavesdropping was, um, was about harking, harkening after discourse. So listening under the eavesdrop of somebody's house. With the purpose of spreading um, uh, uh, rumor and gossip, and so mm-hmm. that's the social disorder. It's the, it's the, you know, think of the figure in the night, uh, and this kind of this disruption of, of the social order. That was the problem, and and one of the interesting things from the perspective of our exhibition, uh, and uh, you know, th- thinking about contemporary eavesdropping as a whole, is is as how how um, this idea of eavesdropping changes, how some kind of elements are retained, but how, how this kind of this social problem morphs as we move through time. Mm. It makes me think of an oral peeping Tom, this mm. 14th century mm. eavesdropper. And, you know, while you did say it's, it's not so much about an invasion of privacy, it is about what that person doing the eavesdropping intends to do with yeah. the information that they've gathered as well. So... How did you bring this? It seems like an idea that you've been interested in in some time. Perhaps would that mm. be right, Joel? How did it? How did this coalesce around this large, multi uh, kind of medium, multi collaborator exhibition that you've got going on at the mm. Potter Museum? Yeah, good question. I've been sort of thinking about the genesis of this project and um, tr- trying to kind of locate the start point, but it's a, it's a bit hard. I mean. Um, the, the organisation that I, I work with, um, Liquid Architecture, we sort of, um, I guess, invested in what's been called sound art or sonic art and kind of the way that artists work with sound and listening in, in experimental situations. And, it, of course, listening has been um, kind of heavily theorised um, in the context of avant-garde music and experimental music. You've got figures like John Cage and mm. Pauline Oliveras who had this term deep listening, and there are debates with in Sonic Art about sort of the modalities of listening and what's at stake with with each kind and what you are listening for and uh, what sort of strategies and politics and aesthetics you bring to that listening. And, and I suppose um, at, at a certain point um, in the conversations that James and I were having, uh, we, we were sort of trying to think uh, how can we maybe... Uh, Think about some of the forms of listening that artists do, but then uh, sort of agitate those by bringing in uh, the kinds of listenings that happen uh, in non-art contexts. Um, and, and I remember having the thought, um, I don't know whether it was a year or two ago, that um, wouldn't it be interesting to sort of set 
artistic listening uh, alongside sort of covert and secret and sort of surveillance listening uh, and think, well, what, what do those two methodologies, uh, if you could call them that, share? Like, what do they do when you sort of locate them next to one another? Um, and, and that thought sort of uh, set in motion these two streams of research. But I, I think what happened quite quickly was that um, we started to... Um, find artists um, and activists who were working within an art context um, who had had already had those ideas as well um, and were sort of, um, for instance, the, the artist Lawrence Abu Hamdan, who's very important to this project, ha- has been describing himself as a private ear, um, you know, play on 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 the the term private eye, um, and he's always. Uh, he's already understood himself as a, as a kind of detective um, who who uses listening as a methodology for sort of uncovering uh, and establishing in a forensic sort of context the truth of, of um, certain situations. So, you know, we started with art on one side of the ledger and, and maybe sort of law, politics, governance sort of on the other side. But, uh, as the, as the project progressed, those things became very entangled. And that, that's, I think, reflected in the exhibition and the public program. And, and that's one of the things I really like about the, the term eavesdropping. You cannot think eavesdropping without thinking on the first hand of listening and on the other hand of a sort of a political or legal question about the sort of, um, appropriateness of that listening. And so, you know, I gave the example before of a 14th, 15th, 16th century social problem, and that's one thing. Um, but obviously when we talk about eavesdropping today, we're talking about something different. But when we talk about it, we're still talking about the politics of listening and the politics of being listened to and the ways in which law uh, intersects uh, with those political questions. So as a, as a topic for an exhibition, I think eavesdropping um, draws together, holds together our, our respective concerns as mm. a legal academic mm. and as a curator of sound art, like really, really well. Mm. And I think we also really wanted to make this an, an exhibition that uh, uh, confronted uh, political questions uh, fairly head on and uh, th- that's kind of an important gesture within the context of the sonic arts uh, or artists who work with sound uh, as well mm. hmm. You mentioned Lawrence Abu Hamdan then uh, mm. I wonder, he, he thinks of himself as a private ear where is he listening? Uh, well, in, in, in all sorts of, uh, places. I mean, um, in the works that are presented, uh, in the show, um, he, he's listening, uh, I suppose, um, in the context of, um, the work Rubber Coated Steel in a war zone, in, uh, the space of the conflict, um, uh, in the Palestinian occupied territories. He's listening to the sound of, um, an Israeli sniper, uh, shooting at uh, Palestinian uh, teenagers and analysing uh, the sound of that gunshot in order to sort of establish uh, the kind of bullet and the kind of gun and the uh, circumstances around that incident. So in that instance, um, he's uh, listening to a, a, a conflict uh, and um, it's... He's, he's listening to that sort of after the fact, um, but also whilst the, um, I suppose, uh, legal implications are still playing out. Um, in another work, The Missing uh, uh, 19 Decibels, he's listening to 
a secret prison, um, Sidonia, which is outside of Damascus, that the Syrian regime uh, have used to hold uh, political prisoners um, in that uh, civil war that's obviously still um, unfolding. And um, he's uh, not listening himself because, um, of course, he, he wasn't there and uh, no um, human rights organisation has been there or, or been given access uh, to that place. Um, so what he's listening to are the testimonies of uh, survivors um, who are really uh, only able to sort of recount their experience through the memories of sounds that they heard because um, very often uh, or almost sort of for, for the entirety of their time they were uh, kept in darkness and, and sort of disoriented um intentionally uh, so as not to be able to kind of um, establish any details of, mm. of where they were or sort of with whom. So uh, he's, uh, I suppose, where is he listening? He, he's, he's listening um, at in sorts of, in, in political spaces um, where decisions are being made, often life and death decisions, decisions that affect uh, the lives of uh, people who are often very vulnerable or subjected uh, to uh, violence, usually by the state. Uh, and he's listening there in order to make a kind of uh, an intervention uh, in order to what he, he describes. He, he describes his practice as, as an artistic practice of truth production, mm. you know, and he sort of contrasts that to a kind of dominant discourse in contemporary art, which sort of suggests that art is primarily about asking questions. He, he sort of says, well... Uh, art is, in my, in his view, is about a certain kind of truth claim that can be made um, strategically. It is interesting. It sounds like he's listening to spaces where silence is attempted to be manufactured in one space. You know, these prisons, these war zones. I understand mm-hmm. there's a number of people working with people both in and outside of the Manus refugee camps at the mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about their involvement? I'm sure that's of deep interest to our listeners. Mm. Well, um, the, the the Manus work is n- not involving Lawrence. Um, the the Manus work is uh, produced collectively by a group called uh, the Manus Recording Project Collective, uh, and that involves six men currently uh, held on on Manus Island, where they were forcefully deported to by the Australian government, and three men in Melbourne, all all of whom were involved with a project called Behind the Wire, which you may have heard of. There was they produced an excellent podcast um, called The Messenger, uh, which involved a journalist in Melbourne, Michael Green, uh, kind of holding this conversation over <clears throat> months uh, with a guy on Manus called uh, Aziz Muhammad, and and uh, that that podcast was really. Uh, kind of the impetus um, for, for this project. I mean, I remember the first time I listened to it um, and I was just so struck um, by the fact that I, had, I hadn't heard anyone on Manus speaking in their own voice up until that point. 
I mean, perhaps perhaps I wasn't listening in the right pl- places on, on one level, but so much of the discourse around uh, Manus Island, m- maybe, you know, something makes it out into the newspaper, but to actually hear the voice of somebody, mm. and not only to hear the voice, but to hear, um, you know, the sounds of Manus kind of seeping through into these recordings. I remember one of the very early recordings um, from The Messenger that the journalist asks, M- Michael asks, oh, I, I, heard, um, I heard some music in the background. Um, you know, wh- wh- what's that? I mean, he says, he, I'm embarrassed to ask. Like, what, what, I didn't realize that you, you know, what, what, what kind of access to music do you have? And I remember being struck as a listener by how that was a kind of a profound thing and that one of the, one of the, uh, really sort of powerful techniques of, um, um, banishment is to silence and to produce a kind of an inability to listen mm-hmm. and an inability mm-hmm. to access and hear what's going on. And so when we approached um, the, uh, the the team in Melbourne um, involved with the Manus Recording Project Collective about doing something, we commissioned a, a, a new work for this exhibition. You know, we said, what, what, you know, we'd like to explore that with you. Um, you know, what do you think? And the idea that they came up with in collaboration with Six Guys on Manus is... Um, 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 to produce a new recording, um, we ended up deciding to, of 10 minutes each day, but it, you know, it could have been a different number. Um, a new recording, one from each guy, because the, the exhibition is open six days a week, so six recordings each week for the duration of the exhibition of just sort of anything they like. So we sent out mm-hmm. um, high-quality stereo um, recording devices and... Um, you were able to get them into Manus. Yeah, because mm. because of the pre, it was really important that there was a pre-existing relationship um, between. You know, you know I, I don't think it would have been possible for us to um, reach, you know, ethically and, and politically, mm. the, the, the kind mm. of degree of commitment that's required and, and care mm. and local knowledge and so on um, mm. would have been difficult for us to do, probably impossible. So mm. it's really important that the guys in Melbourne. Uh, are, are involved and they have very long-standing relationships with these guys. They, they've been out uh, to Manus before, or some of them have, and they, they really uh, they really know what they're doing. And so they're able to get these recording devices over. And and so it was a process of um, working out, you know, what um, what the guys on Manus wanted to record, mm. and they all have their different motivations for being involved, um, you know. Um, Beruz Bushani, for example, who's um, written this extraordinary book, uh, No Friend But the Mountain, that just came out recently. Mm-hmm. He's one of the artists involved. And, you know, for him, he said, um, you know, he he's he's tried all of these different forms of expression and, you know, his, his journalism, his movies. And this was something different. This was a... Uh, a way of representing a different aspect of life on Manus. And so the mm. recordings are mm. extremely varied there. You know, mm. one of the recordings was um, Beru's, uh, it was recorded at 3 a.m. one evening, Beru's out in the jungle on Manus. And by the next morning, uh, it was in the gallery at 10 a.m. Mm. So it's an extraordinary mm. turnaround and sort of, mm. uh, you know, it's a, it's a very odd thing to sit mm. in the gallery and to listen to that uh, and to sort of think about the way in which you're implicated in that and, um, just what you know, what it means to listen through this apparatus. You're kind of you're listening to something that's sort of very familiar mm. on one level, but also sort of uncanny. I mean, the very first recording that played in the gallery was, um, I think it was Aziz and some of the guys um, watching the World Cup final. Um, there's recordings of um, uh, local Manusian uh, choir singing in church. There's recordings mm. of um, you know people talking about suicide on Manus. There's mm. um, 
a very, very, very diverse range of recordings. And I mean, each of them. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. I was going to say that there, there's um, something really. Uh, there's a very interesting dynamic in many of the recordings where. Um, in some of them, uh, one of the men will directly address the listener mm. uh, by sort of speaking directly, you know, uh, to, to the sort of ima- imagined listener in the gallery mm. and and recounting, um, you know, their feelings or, gi- or giving a, a, a kind of speech or an introduction, um, and that's a very particular uh, kind of kind of recording that we've seen perhaps um, more of as the project has has progressed. Mm. Uh, and then there's a, a totally different um, kind of recording, although often sort of the two kinds uh, uh, coalesce in the same 10 minutes, um, in, in which uh, we're sort of listening with the guys to something that they like to listen to, whether that's um, mm. the waves of the ocean or um, some music that um, brings comfort or the sound of, you know, frogs or crickets or whatever. So uh, it's an. I was talking about modes of listening before, but sometimes you shift from listening to to sort of, to sort of listening with, mm. um, and I think that's quite important to the project because. Um, in some ways, these 10-minute recordings are a way to spend time with uh, the guys, even if it's only 10 minutes. If it's 10 minutes per day, that still leaves 23 hours and 50 minutes, of course, um, you know, left over. But uh, it's a sort of another way of being with uh, each other through listening and yeah. across, of course, the, the very real political and geographic boundaries that that have been intentionally set up to sort of separate yeah it's um a wonderful moment of shared humanity and that Mm. it's very interesting what people having had their uh liberty and movement and behaviors so controlled for so long what they will choose to do with this new uh form of freedom in terms Mm. of the recording devices and the opportunity to go out and share with an audience and then there is a certain distance created when you speak directly to an audience as opposed to sharing a recording mm. with the audience. So it was an interview with uh, Joel Stern and James Packer who put on Eavesdropping, which was a really interesting exhibition last month. It's a shame that it's not still on to go, but there's a whole repository online, I think it's under eavesdropping.org, uh, where you can have a look at all of the work that they put together and have a listen as well to some of the things that we were hearing about there. So you are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Uh, the time is about 7.32. And in just a moment, I'll be talking with Sione Crawford from Harm Reduction Victoria, uh, talking about International Day uh, of Drug Users and uh, Remembrance. So uh, that was uh, last Thursday, so just stay tuned and um, we'll be with him in one moment. Don't stop me now. We'd never do that, Freddie. Don't stop me. I'm having a good time. Excellent. We're planning such a good time with you, Freddie. Come to the screening of Bohemian Rhapsody on Thursday, November the 8th from 6.30pm at Palace Westgarth Cinemas and have a real good time with Freddie Mercury and Queen. Tickets are 25 full, $20 concession online at 3cr.org.au or from the station, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. You can also call 94198377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Stop 
So that would be a fun night a few weeks from now, checking out uh, that film about the life of Freddie Mercury. I think um, the same actor that was in Mr. Robot is playing the lead role, uh, Sammy Malik or something, but he's a great actor, so I think it'll be really good. Last Thursday, the 1st of November, was International Drug Users Day, uh, a day when organisations around the world uh, remind people about the experience of drug users, uh, an often stigmatised and marginalised group and the challenges that they face, and also just remembering um, that uh, there's a lot of people living uh, with that health condition and they can run into contact with the law. Uh, it's a, a group that's definitely overrepresented in certain health issues and mental health issues. And um, there's a lot of people out there doing work to improve the lives of drug users and help them live happy, healthy lives uh, with or without drugs. And uh, to talk about uh, International Day of Drug Users uh, and its history, I'm joined on the phone now by Sione Crawford, who's the CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria. Sione, uh, thanks heaps for taking the time this morning. No problem, Jackson. Thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, so uh, you're over in New Zealand at the moment uh, for a conference, the APSAD, I should say, Scientific Alcohol and Drug Conference. What are you doing over there? So myself and my colleague, Jane Dicker, are, uh, as you say, over here for the conference. And, you know, conferences are partly about uh, networking and um, meeting people who work in similar sectors, but in the sector, I should say, but it's also uh, an opportunity for us to talk a little bit about the work that Harm Reduction Victoria does. Uh, so myself and Jane are doing a presentation today around uh, one of our projects, um, and that project is uh, an overdose, an opioid overdose reversal project. Uh, and we have another colleague called uh, Steph who is presenting on her project, which is DanceWise, which is a harm reduction project um, a program that we run at festivals across the season uh, in Victoria. So um, that sort of, just in a nutshell, almost uh, encapsulates some of the, the different types of work that we do. Uh, but APSAD is a gathering of like addiction medicine specialists and people who work in, and AOD workers, people who work in alcohol and other drugs, as they call it. Um, and we are, I suppose, a consumer organisation. So we're an organisation made up of people who have experience of So on that note, can you tell us a bit about International Day um, for drug users or for users of drugs and how that day came about and what its, I guess, its aims are in, in Australia and elsewhere? Yeah, sure. So I actually, when we um, were planning this segment, I tried to go back and find out when it started and um, I couldn't pin down um, the time that it started, but I do know that it's been um, in existence for the amount of time that I've been working in this sort of field, and that's for over 15 years. And the day itself is um, a day that was put together by people who use drugs. And just to give you a little bit of context, there are a range of um, there are a range of organisations uh, around the world who are like Harm Reduction Victoria that represent people who use drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an international body and there's a national body and then there are state bodies, for instance. So we're a state one. Um, and the international one is called International, um, uh, sorry, the International Network of People Who Use Drugs. Mm-hmm. And for them, that's a, they work with uh, 
the UN, you know, organisations like United Nations and their sort of uh, their bodies, like the United Nations Office on Drug Control, for instance. And so they work from a community perspective, talking about the experiences of people with drug issues and how drug laws and the international trafficking laws and stuff like that uh, impact on individuals at an individual level. And so International Drug Users Day was put together, I think, to uh, remind these people at these bodies that we're talking about, when we talk about things like the war on drugs, we're actually talking about the war on drug users quite often. Mm. And unfortunately, um, there is a day that uh, appears quite benign when you when you hear it. It's called the uh, International Day Against Drug Abuse and Drug Trafficking. Mm-hmm. That was put together by the UNODC. And unfortunately, that day was used by... Um, countries that still have the death penalty, for instance, China and Indonesia. And that day was often used as a day to execute uh, people uh, who use drugs mm. and um, sort of show off their um, hardline attitude towards um, drug use and drug users. And uh, International Drug Users Day was put together almost to mirror, to, not to mirror that, but to uh, pay off against um, that day uh, and to point out that actually... Um, there are people who use drugs around the world, as you talked about in your introduction, actually, um, who uh, uh, actually are not necessarily bad people, but have really um, often a, a drug, uh, a health condition if they have a dependence. And if they don't have a dependence, then um, it's often a bit of a victimless crime using mm. drugs. So, um, in some ways, uh, we 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 try to use the day to remind people that far from being the stereotype of selfish thieves and drug addicts that, you know, often populates the media. Drug users actually can have positive impacts. Organisations like ours have been around for a long time and have played a, a role in stopping HIV, for instance, from taking off. Mm. Um, would be one example. Um, and so our role really is to um, advance the human rights, but also really it's about... Um, uh, trying to improve the health of people who use drugs and to also talk about the fact that we can be partners in, 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 um, in making things better, being part of the, to use a cliche, you, you know, we try to see ourselves as being part of a solution rather than being a problem. Yeah, and I think too often um, users are categorised as a problem and a social thing that people just want to erase, you know, forget about, erase, remove, pop in prison often enough. Um, it's really interesting that you spoke about there that, you know, the UN, you know, a, a supposedly benign day uh, like cracking down on trafficking has been used, you know, by someone like Duterte in Indonesia to, to kill, you know, upwards of 20,000 people indiscriminately and say that it's for the, the, the good of society. I mean, we're not dealing with that here in Australia, but, you know, we do have a promise here in Victoria from uh, opposition leader Matthew Guy to shut down the safe injecting room, which is one of the great victories for the harm reduction movement. Uh, in the last 12 months. Uh, can you just uh, chat to me about, uh, I'm not sure what role you've played in, in um, I'm sure, as CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria, you, it's been something that you've been wanting for a long time. But, um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about the importance of the safe injecting room? Also, as a, as a one-stop shop for kind of uh, various types of advice, that you know, health advice and financial advice that people might be able to get, and what it would mean if it was, you know, shut down in this, in this trial phase by an incoming Liberal government. Sure. So, as, as you say, absolutely, the injecting room is a great victory for um, people who want to take a pragmatic approach to uh, to drug use, who, which is what harm reduction is. It's about saying that, look, um, we don't necessarily condone 
drug use, but we don't condemn people who use drugs. What we want to do is try and reduce the harms that can flow from, from drug use through education and through pragmatic policies like needle and syringe programs, which help stop the HIV epidemic, as we talked about. And in the case of um, the injecting rooms, um, that's very much a response to overdose uh, and to street-based drug use. Um, just to take you back to quite a few years ago, um, I was living in, uh, in in the King's Cross area when they brought in the injecting room in, um, in Sydney. And mm-hmm. just like... Um, uh, just like here, uh, in, in street-based injecting drug use didn't go away immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened is that um, it was really noticeable how how, how fewer uh, people there were um, overdosing on the streets, and mm-hmm. how 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 fewer uh, people in desperate need there were around. And it wasn't just because, and they weren't hadn't been erased, as you say, like moved on or um, just moved to a different part of the world or put in jail. Uh, actually, what was happening is that they were um, given a safe space to do something that they were doing every day, maybe three times a day anyway, uh, and were able to do that in a contained way uh, and weren't dying. It was really um, vivid, and that's been a tremendous success. And you could say in some respects that the Victorian, um, the North Richmond uh, Community Health uh, Medical Supervised Injecting Room has been even more of a success. I was talking to the director, um, Nico, the other day, and over, <clears throat> they have up to 200 people a day um, going through that centre at the moment, mm-hmm. um, which is which is massive. Um, it took quite a long time for the Sydney one to get to that um, get to that level, and what that says is that there is a massive drug use issue in <laughs> North Richmond, mm-hmm. and I think that was obvious to anyone in the community in the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also the people taking it up, and people. This is my, I suppose our point is that people who use drugs actually do want. to to, to live, uh, I think sometimes we're portrayed as being, um, uh, you know, uh, thrill seekers or uh, death seekers or people who don't care about themselves or other people. Mm. But often it's just people who have got themselves in a situation that they just have a lot of trouble getting out of and need to make the best of day to day to day decisions. And uh, the injecting room has basically is the subtext of the injecting room. I think that people who are opposed to it. I think, I think the thing that they hate the most about the injector room is that they feel like it says to people that it's okay to use drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I would say is that it's less about saying it's okay to use drugs and it's more about saying if you use drugs, it's okay to ask for help and come uh, and access uh, a service that might actually save your life. Mm. So it's really respecting the fact that people are uh, in a circumstance that um, really not ideal mm. and um, giving them the opportunity to actually survive and maybe, if, if it works for them down the track, um, stop using drugs. Yeah. Uh, you can't stop using if you're dead. Well, yeah. obviously you have stopped using if you're dead, but there's not a lot of point to that. You can't um, be a member of the community. People... Sorry, I interrupted you. You can't be a member of the community anymore. That's right, yeah. So, look, I understand... Well, no, I don't understand. I do understand the reasoning behind um, the Liberals wanting to close the injecting room down. I think that um, they were put off by the fact that it was... Um, that ice being injected there mm-hmm. uh, when it was put... When, when I think that a lot of people thought that this was just about stopping heroin overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, my Our perspective on it is that... And our knowledge of, of drug use is that 
people very seldom just use one thing. Mm-hmm. And so by banning ice, really what you're doing is also banning a large number of people who uh, would also be using heroin either at the same time or in, or in very close proximity. You're also asking the centre to become police officers, so they would have to be searching and checking everyone's drugs as they walk in the door and making sure that you know they don't have anything um, else, like ice in their pocket. Mm. You know, you might be able, you might say or show someone heroin, but if you've got ice in your pocket, then proceed to use it. All of a sudden, it becomes a circumstance where a health centre is doing the police uh, police the job. Mm. Uh, it changes the whole vibe of the, of the place, doesn't it, you know, for those people coming in. I think it's really interesting, you know, we, we've, we've seen in society over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, a change in tone towards people battling with alcohol addiction or gambling addiction particularly, you know, that we see uh, prominent people, uh, mental health is another area, we see prominent people come out and ask for help and have industries uh, and, and, and the community throw their arms around them, but we haven't seen that same type of cultural response in news media and in advertorial content for people who may not be interested in gambling or alcohol or, you know, be suffering a a chronic mental health condition but might be interested in cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine or something that doesn't have the approval of of society. And I I understand that this this stigma and this isolation is, is a real factor in not seeking out health health supports or, you know, um, a supportive community even, you know, you lose contact with family and friends, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to know from your, you know, this is the last question because we're running out of time, uh, and you've been working in the industry for, for 15 years. What do you think the best way is to support a drug user who might be in your in your family or friendship circle to help them live a, a healthy, happy life? Oh, look, um, that's a um, complex question, but I think that... You put the, hit the nail on the head at the start of that uh, of that um, piece when you said that um, the issue really is stigma and discrimination, and what that means for a person on a day to day level is that um, if they feel uh, judged or unable to tell the truth, uh, then they are much more likely to not ask for help and to try and you know suffer in, in silence. Um, I think one of the better ways that I could um, describe a way to go would be just to use a, a personal example and that would be that um, my parents uh, were uh, are not were not judgmental people and were rather were pretty open and I'm fairly convinced that the fact that although I tried to hide my drug use from them when I was younger the fact that my uh, parents uh, figured it out and talked to me about it rather than um, banning me from the house throwing me out or um, ostracizing me from the family um, because they had had other friends who had used drugs and they knew that they didn't necessarily instantly turn into demons or devils uh, and they knew that I was they, that I was um, still the same uh, loving son that they'd always had but who had uh, been using drugs uh, and was potentially in a situation where uh, I might, you know, in the worst case scenario, die. Um, what they wanted to do was communicate with me and make sure that if I was using, I was using safely, that I wouldn't get HIV and hepatitis B, or that at least uh, if I did, uh, I was in touch with health services. Uh, and so what they did is actually opened their house to me, uh, far from throwing me out. They said, come and stay whenever you need to. What I knew is that I could always go and count on their support. Um, and I could tell them, for instance, uh, when I went on to pharmacotherapy, you know, I could say, look, I'm on methadone. When I come to stay with you, I'm going to have to go to the chemist every day. You know, don't look at me a scant for doing, you know, 
doing that. We were just able to communicate. And I think that what it comes down to is accepting that someone is still the same person, whether they're using drugs or not. Mm. And often when people's personalities and stuff and, 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 uh, and so on changes, it's in reaction to um, the way that they're being treated mm. uh, by, by their family or by their friends or by society. I think that when you use drugs, um, you feel like everything that goes wrong, people will blame on that. So if you're late for a party, oh, it's because the only, you know, he was off scoring up a fair, I'm just late. You know, um, and, and it becomes a situation where it, uh, everything, <laughs> everything is related to drug use when actually, um, that might be a really important part of your life, but it's not everything and it doesn't define, doesn't define everyone that uses drugs. You know, we do have other characteristics and personality. Mm. Um, and I think that keeping an open mind to that, um, no matter what circumstance a person is in, is probably the best advice I would probably give to a parent or a friend of mm. someone who's using. We can't always tell you the truth. There are lots of reasons why it's difficult to tell I can to tell someone if everything that's going on. People are ashamed. Um, you know, you might have spent your rent and be ashamed of that. Uh, you might have, uh, you know, you might be sick one day and you don't want to turn up to your nephew's uh, birthday or whatever. But um, if, if you're able to at least be a little bit honest about it and not uh, feel that overwhelming shame every time something goes wrong, I think you're in a better place to actually um, live a life in Karen. Yeah, any life with a lack of shame sounds like a better one to me. Look, um, Sione, thanks heaps yeah. for talking this morning. Uh, I know you've got a busy day over there. I really appreciate it. And um, hopefully when you're back in uh, Melbourne, we can have you on the show again. Thank you, Jackson. It's been, it's been great to talk. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no problem. So that was Sione Crawford from Harm Reduction Victoria, just talking about International Day of People Who Use Drugs, which was last Thursday, and the work of Harm Reduction Victoria more generally. Uh, and up next we have Over the Wall. Um, today Over the Wall are talking with Leah Kativa, uh, who about the role of advocates who jump in between disabled clients or people with a disability and the government bureau, the uh, and the NDIA, um, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, so or the ND, I guess it would be the NDIA must be the association or administration. Uh, so this is uh, Duncan Graham. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. Today, we begin a two-part interview with Leah Kativa, CEO of the Rights Information and Advocacy Centre, about the role of advocacy for clients dealing with the NDIS and the challenges it presents. Parts of this interview dealing with the suicide of the parent of a disabled son will likely be distressing to many, but we broadcast it as we believe it demonstrates powerfully the frustrations that can arise from dealing with the NDIS. The Rights Information and Advocacy Centre, or RIAC, has been advocating for the disabled under different monikers since 1984. The bulk of their funding comes from state and federal government grants. I had an opportunity to talk to Leah Kativa, CEO of the RIAC, at a recent conference on fixing the NDIS. 
She began by outlining the attitude of the NDIA toward advocates and the RIAC. Halfway through this interview, she outlined a particular example of system failure that led to a mother's death. Once again, we stress that listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Leah Kativa. I am the CEO of the Rights Information and Advocacy Centre in Victoria. As I understand it, advocacy is actually written into the uh, Act that sets up the NDIA, but it seems like that it's a bit of a battle to get the NDIA to recognise that people can use advocates. Is that accurate? Yes, that is accurate. As far as the NDIA is concerned, we're a foe rather than a support. And as such, they fear us, I guess, rather than see us as being able to support the process to everyone's liking. So we've had a lot of trouble even getting our brochures into the NDIA offices. And recently in Bendigo, we asked a question, could we please put our brochures in their office? And the response came by a letter saying that no... It's been a policy of the NDIA nationwide to not have any providers, and that's including advocacy brochures, in any offices across Australia. Now, that's not quite true because the very next week we had one of the officers ring us for our brochures. How could that person say that? Certainly it's gone further than that, and we're yet to have a reply from that. We've had advocates being asked to leave... Of course, we never do leave, but, yeah, so in a planning process, we've been asked to leave. They don't really credit us with knowing the Act. (laughs) Um, We're often pointing the Act out to them. (laughs) So it's been difficult. So what we've planned, Vicdan and some other agencies have planned to do some training for planners within the NDIA. We put that to them, and certainly... Geelong and Western Vic has been very responsive to that. So I think it's next week we're doing training for NDIS planners, which is a big step forward, but it's taken a long time. (laughs) It's a step forward, but it would seem passing strange that you as an NGO, Mm. that you're providing training that should be supplied by the government. Yes, and certainly they're not paying us to provide it, but we're at the stage now that We need them to recognise advocacy for what it is and this might be the only way we can do it. We did provide training in the very first year but all those planners have left. (laughs) So they have so many planners come and go, like it's a constant thing. So we're looking to get some funding, I guess, to actually make a series of advocacy videos or um, YouTube things so that we don't have to keep doing it but... If it's going to help our participants and families, then we're willing to do anything, really. You talked about a particular case of a young single mother that was quite moving. Can you give us a couple of details about that case? The case was a single mum with a boy with severe autism who was a teenager, so very strong, and obviously if he had anxiety or anything, his mum wasn't able to control it. So it became essential that she had respite. Before the NDIS rollout, she was able to get respite for each weekend so she could have a break, recharge, and face the next week. 
When the rollout came, her respite was reduced to 20 hours a year. That's like not even a night. (laughs) And rather than go through the process of appealing that, because she needed it desperately then, she decided she would beg them to change their mind (laughs) about that and try to give them some insight of what was happening for her. She was told, no, it wasn't going to change. So she decided there was nowhere to go, obviously quite depressed, put her son into respite for the 20 hours and then went home and killed herself. It just shows the desperation and the human side. Really, that's what we do best as advocates is bring that human element into the conversation, which is often very sterile and very medical. And we try to give the picture the life experience, the lived experience, because that's part of the legislation, the lived experience. They're meant to take that into account, and often they don't. So it's essential that we start to introduce that as much as we can. And, look, we will sit at an office all day, if we have to, with participants, until we see someone. And then we find that often works because they then have the person who cries and they can see what we see all the time and they often make a change in their decision. But until you bring that in, it's easy to be sterile. If this interview has brought up issues for you around self-harm, you may wish to write down the following numbers. Lifeline can be contacted at 131114. The Suicide Callback Service is at 1300 659 467. Also, the RIAC can be contacted via riac.org.au where you will find phone numbers for the various regional offices. Next week, we conclude our interview with Leah Kativa, covering the various review processes for clients unhappy with their plans, the structural and judicial pitfalls you may encounter and the phenomenon of conciliation processes and non-disclosure agreements. We thank Leah for her time and insights. that was Over the Wall and thanks very much to Duncan Graham again for uh, his work in putting that together and to Leah Kativa for her time as well. Once again, if anything in that interview uh, brought up uh, any uh, issues for you, uh, have you feeling concerned, do call Lifeline 1-800-809-384. You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. The time's just gone past 8 o'clock. I just wanted to play a song before we chat about some other things. This song is by a band called Low Tide. Uh, they're a Melbourne-based band of a new record, and the song's called Alinda. Uh, so, yeah, have a listen.
So that was Low Tide with Alinda uh, off a new record by them called Southern Mind. Just came out this year. It's a really beautiful piece of shoegaze. Um, I'm kind of enjoying playing some music. It's not something we do often on uh, Monday breakfast. We normally are filled to the brim with uh, chat and uh, sometimes unedifying opinion, always impeccably researched. Uh, but today I would like to uh, play, yeah, play a few tunes. Um, this other one I wanted to play uh, is by a band out of Canberra called Moaning Lisa, which I think is a great name for a band. Uh, and this is a track, uh, I think they released it, um, <clears throat> I think they originally released it last year as a single, maybe much earlier this year, and it's now on their first kind of um, shorter-length le- shorter LP. Uh, and this is called Carry Brackets I Want. A girl. I want a Kim, I want a Courtney, I want a Florence, I want a Nanny, I want a Sid, I want an Ellen, I want an Ellen and a Carrie.
You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, and that was Moaning Lisa, a band out of Canberra. Definitely can hear some um, influences of the breeders uh, on that who are playing uh, Meredith in a couple of weeks' time, which is pretty exciting. Uh, so that was off uh, their uh, LP called Do You Know Enough? Do You Know Enough by Moaning Lisa. It's been fun to play a few tracks this morning, being alone here on this uh, strange, not-quite-public holiday that is in between the weekend and that horse race. My name is Jackson, if you've just joined us. Um, we've been having a chat about harm reduction with Sione Crawford and heard a little bit about an amazing art project called Eavesdropping. And before I play one more track for the end of the day, I just wanted to touch on a few things that have happened uh, over the last few weeks while I've been away. Um, just recently, last week, uh, a young girl, a girl in year eight called Harriet, who lives in central Victoria, uh, sent out uh, a call to action to a whole lot of different people uh, saying that on that coming Thursday, so that was on the 30th of October, so I guess it was, um, you know, calling it out a few days earlier. She said she was going to walk out of school uh, in protest over our politicians' inaction on climate change in the Adani coal mine and that she's not alone. She's organised her whole class to join her along with kids aged 6 to 17 from cities and towns across Australia. Uh, and now they are doing it um, nationally on November 30th. Uh, they'll join with kids across the country to strike together as part of the big school walkouts in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. Kids are invited to join us and adults invited to support us. So uh, that is uh, Friday, November 30th for the Melbourne uh, big walkout. It's at 12 noon outside Parliament House, uh, which is a great place to start a protest. And I'm just really impressed that this... Uh, Young, I imagine she's 13 or 14 years old. Uh, she's written this letter. It says, most of us have never met one another, but we all share the same concern. Our politicians are not doing enough to protect, excuse me, to protect our futures from dangerous climate change. Instead, they are approving massive new coal mines that will wreck our future. We don't want to live in a world where 50 degree days are the norm, where the Great Barrier Reef is dead, where rain is a novelty, raging bushfires and severe storms, the status quo. Kids didn't create the problem, but we are, but we are going to do all we can to help fix it, and our politicians should too. And I think what's unsaid there is that kids may not have created the problem, but they're certain to inherit it at the current rate of change. And with our Prime Minister Scott Morrison making comments about fair dinkum energy being the type of energy that yeah don't have to worry about whether the wind blows or the sun shines, you know. Two things which I've certainly noticed have been in short supply in Australia, wind and sunshine. You know, so we're going to keep digging stuff out of the ground. We're going to do, from what I hear, you know, maybe fracking in the Northern Territory, Queensland. And it's uh, great that this young girl, Harriet, is, you know, getting active early and encouraging people to get involved. So if you've got school-aged children or if you're a, a young person yourself and you're listening in, uh, kudos on being up if you've got the day off school. Yeah, get involved. Uh, Monday, 12 noon, Friday uh, November 30th, outside Victorian Parliament. So you get to leave school a little earlier than that. Uh, one other thing I wanted to touch on was the horrendous violence against uh, Jewish communities in Pittsburgh at the Tree of Life Synagogue back at the end of October, on October 27th. I think 11 uh, people were murdered by a, a right-wing terrorist called uh, Robert Bowers. 
uh, who murdered those people while they were attending uh, services on the weekend. Uh, he had written heated anti-Semitic screeds online. And I just wanted to uh, touch on a press release by the Australian branch of the Freedom Socialist Party that they uh, released on October 29th. And they mourn the 11 Jewish uh, congregants assassinated on the Saturday, October 27th, and extend our sympathy and solidarity to the families and friends and to the six others wounded at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. We condemn the bigotry of organised ultra-rightists emboldened by President Trump and Steve Bannon that has set the stage for a wave of violence by individual reactionaries, and we are helping to create working-class united fronts to defend the targets of these neo-Nazis. Uh, the assailant, Robert Bowers, was uh, deeply connected to white nationalists and the white nationalist movement that we've seen growing steam in Charlottesville. And even here in Australia, we've had the National Party uh, investigating up to 35 of its own members recently for uh, either a history of association with white supremacist groups um, or a or making white supremacist, com- white supremacist uh, commentary online. Uh, and obviously people of the Jewish faith are often in the firing line uh, for these groups. Um, the, in their press release, the Freedom uh, Socialist Party uh, goes on to say that far-right violence is rising and President Trump's loudly proclaimed racism and xenophobia are in a large part responsible. Here in Australia, I think that mantle is being taken up by people like Peter Dutton and Corey Bernardi, who continue to fan the flames uh, of racial tension. Uh, obviously Pauline Hansen as well. And I think it's uh, really important, uh, uh, I think a few weeks ago, Tuesday Breakfast read out the names of the 28 senators here in Australia who voted incredibly in favour of Pauline Hansen's It's OK to be White motion. The 28 senators voted to uh, agree with that motion uh, that, that we have to pronounce in the Australian Parliament, a, uh, a white settler uh, colonialist state, uh, that it's OK to be white. So this motion is, is saying that the, the Senate acknowledged the, the deplorable rise of anti-white racism and attacks on Western civilization, and B, that it's okay to be right, uh, when obviously uh, the attacks uh, that we mainly see in our communities, whether they be economic, whether they be physical, you know, they're not, um, they're not happening to whites, they're happening to marginalised groups. And just think it's important to remember which ministers voted to agree with this motion by Pauline Hanson uh, within this context of rising right-wing fascism. Uh, so they were Nigel Scullion, who is the Indigenous Minister, uh, Zed Zedelja from the Liberal Party, Erica Betts, Richard Colbeck, also both from the Liberal Party, Fraser Anning, Pauline Hanson, Barry O'Sullivan from the Qatar One Nation and National Party, respectively, Corey Bernardi from the Australian Conservatives, Simon Birmingham from the Liberal Party, Lucy Gucci from the Liberal Party, Anne Ruston from the Liberal Party, Slade Brockman from the Liberal Party, Peter Georgiou from the One Nation Party, Dean Smith from the Liberal Party, Conchetta Firavanti-Wells from the Liberal Party, David Linehelm from the Liberal Democrats, and Jim Molan from the Liberal Party, Mitch Fifield here in Victoria from the Liberal Party, Jane Hume also in Victoria from the Liberal Party, and Bridget McKenzie, Victoria National Party. So really disappointing, quite terrifying. They are adding to that proclaimed racism and xenophobia. There is a link between xenophobia and racism. And I think xenophobia uh, is is rife in certain aspects of Australian community. And this rising rhetoric, say the uh, Freedom Socialist Party, uh, is in part responsible for the violence that we are seeing against marginalised groups. Conditions for fascism are ripening. Economic, economists are warning 
that the next recession is on the horizon. This means there will be another broad, radical protest movement in the United States and elsewhere. And Trump and his friends are trying to prepare for that inevitability. They know they can be defeated by a unified working class movement, and so they attempt to, uh, to whip up fear of the other. They lie that immigrants and the poor are to blame for economic scarcities and hardships that the 1% is responsible for. And I think that is mirrored here in Australia. We listen to Over the Wall each week here on Monday Breakfast, and we hear the ways in which the poor and those who are struggling are made to feel vilified and to be the problem, you know, chased for tiny amounts of money that they may have been uh, mispaid, often by Centrelink's clerical error. 75% of those who have contested the robo-debts uh, have had them uh, substantially reduced or thrown out. We're seeing people put on uh, the so-called cashless credit cards uh, that controls their spending and limits their movement. And we're obviously seeing constant uh, racial dog-whistling around immigration uh, and it's obvious that the people that are detained are people of colour. Uh, they're the ones that are locked in these uh, endless concentration camps uh, for years and years. Um, uh, and, the, and the fear that is sown amongst our communities about uh, asylum seekers who have arrived here in Australia or migrants uh, themselves. I, I know there's a, a whole uh, hour on Four Corners this evening about uh, the impact that um, the moral panic of uh, African gang violence is having on that community and on the efforts of police uh, to do their jobs effectively. Police are receiving calls, uh, according to Four Corners, where people describe minivans of African youths crashing into the house and when they arrive it's simply one person, not a, an African or a Somali person in sight, who has had a car accident uh, and this is diverting uh, police resources away from uh, real crimes that may be occurring, crimes like you know, the fact that uh, one Australian woman dies every week at the hands of a known assailant, uh, normally a partner uh, or husband. So uh, these kinds of things, you know, they're all intersected. Next week um, we will be speaking uh, to Tarang Trawler, who's a candidate out in the uh, far southeast in the upcoming state election, who whose whole platform is on uh, attacking or dealing with gendered violence and uh, calling it what it is and trying to uh, get rid of this uh, terrible scourge on our society. So that would be really interesting to chat with him. And we'll also be uh, talking to someone about a new book published about Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, which will be interested as well. Uh, I'm going to play another song now because I don't have anyone to talk to here uh, so I, I just would like to listen to some music and perhaps you'd like to listen along as well um, this is a track by a band called Toro Giovanni um, they're a kind of disco funk band that have been around for quite a while now I think uh, many years ago you could see them uh, walking in the underpass between um, Flinders Street and De Graves during Melbourne Music Week but uh, it's changed a lot since then and they've put on some great sets at some very uh, large venues and they've finally released their debut album, uh, the album is called Euphoria, uh, the band is Toro Giovanni and this track is called A Killer. Jungle. The Jungle. Jungle. The Jungle.
the jungle. I take you down as we get high. 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 Jungle, jungle. I take you down as we get high. I take you down as we get high. I take you down as we get high. Jungle. I take you down as we get high. As we get high, as we get high, I take you down. I lead you up those stairs. The cloudy refrain. Insincillating. Incriminating. Tossillating. Tossing and turning. Weaving underneath your sleep. Daydreaming. Night dreaming. Night crawling. Night terrors. Nightmares. Horses. They love the mares. I love the stare. I love it, Claire's as they love you. I love it, Claire's as they love you. I love it, Claire's as they love you. Love you, deja vu. Love you, love you. I love it, Claire's as they love you. I love it, Claire's like they love you. Like you, like you. Deja vu, 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 vu. I like the Claire's, I like to stare. I like to stare. I like to stare when the person stares right back. I like to look inside the eyes. I like to watch as you close and I open and I engulf you. And I refrain from beating down because I want to. Because all I can do is stare and pulse and beat and talk and tease and tease. And you like, you like the everyday songs. You don't like the special occasions. Seems to me that every day is a special occasion. Seems to me that every way is a special occasion. Agila, 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 agila. You drive me crazy, Agila. Don't you stand? You drive me crazy. You make a poor man get off his lazy. You drive me crazy. You make a poor man get off his lazy. Get off his lazy. Get off his lazy. Agila. You drive me crazy, Aguila. Don't you stand, you drive me crazy. You make a poor man get off his lazy. You drive me crazy. You make a poor man get off his lazy. Get off his lazy. Get off his lazy. Aguila. Stop it. Think about you, Aguilar. 
3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. My name is Jackson. It's been really fun to be with you this morning and have a chat about a few issues happening in the world and listen to some tunes. Uh, I actually want to play one more track before I get out of here uh, by a band called Crepes, a Melbourne band. It's called Mild Conversation. And we'll be back next week uh, with a full house and we'll be talking a lot about the upcoming Victorian election. So enjoy this track and i uh, see you next week.